You know, I, um, I don't watch a whole lot of television, but I do watch certain shows, and one that has kind of caught my eye that I rather enjoy, it's a reality show that is called Undercover Boss. And I've watched numerous episodes of this, and in case you haven't, let me tell you how the show goes. The boss or the CEO of a company, typically a multimillionaire, goes out to one of the branches within his company. He's, he disguises himself as a new hire. They, they dye his hair, shave his beard, do whatever, or her, make them look totally different, and they start working. And they do this to try to get a clear view or understanding of what's going on out there um, in, their, in their company and with its employees. Now, the coworkers, they have no idea who this person is, what their true identity is. To them, they're just another worker. And so with hidden cameras everywhere, you get to watch this boss being trained as he starts to work on the job. And in all the episodes that, that I have watched, um, you, you, uh, you get to see the CEO starting to get a real flavor for what goes on out in his company both the internal mechanisms of the company as well as how the company operates as well as how the employees are doing. And, and he walks away sometimes with not always the best concept of what he thought was going on in his company isn't. But at the same time, the person runs into employees who are completely dedicated and, and, and committed to the work that they do. The funniest part is watching these CEOs struggle to do the work that they're getting paid to do, something that they constantly pay other people to do. Many of them look like literal klutzes out there trying to perform these, these, these tasks. There have been times when the undercover boss's mistake was so big that the entire assembly line or the entire process came to a complete halt. But what really makes this show so entertaining is as the viewer, you realize that things aren't as they seem because we know they're really the boss. He or she is a multimillionaire. They're the head of the company. And though it may not look like it, as the viewer, you realize that they are in charge of everything. And the reason that I bring this up is because in today's scripture reference, there is a sense in which we see this undercover boss principle going on. And it's in John's account of the arrest of Jesus. In fact, in preparation, go ahead and turn to John chapter 18. You see, things aren't as they seem to either the soldiers or the, the temple officials who were sent out to get our Lord that night. They thought they were dealing with just another troublemaker. They thought that they were in control of the situation, but they couldn't be more wrong. So let's look at John 18. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 14. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen behind me, and you can follow along. I'll be reading this morning from the New International Version. John 18, 1 through 14. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, 
Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with him. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Now, if you just read, uh, casually read this account, many people will walk away thinking that Jesus was another good guy who got beaten by the system. One notable book titled The Quest for the Historical Jesus, written by Albert Schweitzer, emphasizes that belief. In his book, he said, Jesus was a mere man who was consumed with the coming of the kingdom of God and that his zeal for all of this is what motivated him to try to change the world, but the world just chewed him up and spit him out. To Schweitzer, Jesus was nothing more than a mistaken idealist who was caught and crushed like a rag doll in the wheels of history. He was a victim of, of the system, a man who died on the cross in confusion, and despair and rejection. What a sad understanding of Jesus, his life, and his mission. And unfortunately, this line of thinking didn't end with Schweitzer because the followers of the Jesus Seminar, they still embrace this mindset. But if anyone were to take the time and to look closely at the Bible and carefully study this text that I read this morning, you will clearly see that Jesus was not some helpless victim. Because even on the night of his arrest, Jesus not only exhibited his lordship, but he exhibited his control in quite dramatic fashion. Jesus was God in the flesh, and he was aware, and he was always in control because Jesus is sovereign. Webster defines sovereignty as above or superior to all others, chief, greatest, supreme, independent of all others. In other words, when we say that God is sovereign, we're saying that he's the boss. He may work undercover from time to time, but he still calls the shots. He has all authority. In other words, what he says goes. No one tells him what to do. He is over and above all things, both good and bad, because there is no such thing as, as partial sovereignty. To be sovereign is, sovereign is to be absolutely superior to anyone else and every other thing. So God is always in control. 
And in our text here in John 18, it provides us with a great example of this principle. In fact, before we go any further, let me, let me give you a little bit of background. The Passover meal is now over. His teaching is over. Jesus' mini sermon about him being the, the true vine is finished. The prayer that we discussed last week that I called the real Lord's Prayer has ended, and now it's between midnight and 1 a.m. And Jesus has led his disciples from the temple courtyard down the temple steps towards Jerusalem's eastern gate. From there, they left the city and they traveled down a hillside where they crossed the Kidron Ravine. Their destination was their customary retreat a walled garden on the western slope of the Mount of Olives overlooking the holy city. Now, since it was Passover, there would have been a full moon. This meant that there was enough light for Jesus and and for those who were with him to see the waters in the brook. And the waters were stained crimson by the blood of the Passover lambs that had been slain in the temple above. In fact, that's how the brook got its name because the word Kidron means dusky and gloomy. And that's exactly the way that this brook appeared, especially this time of year. You see, there was a a drain that ran from the altar temple, the temple altar, excuse me, down to the Kidron ravine is served as a runoff for the blood of all of these animal sacrifices. And during the Passover, more than 200,000 lambs were slain. So when Jesus and his followers crossed the Kidron, the waters were truly a deep red. And it's important for us to remember that the sacrifice of the Passover lamb was God's object lesson. It, It was his teaching that foretold the death of his only son. The Passover was to prepare the Jewish people for Jesus' coming. It was to help them understand that his sacrifice would be on our behalf. And as Jesus crossed that that bloody brook, I am certain that he thought of his looming death. And that thought would have been in the forefront of his mind. He, the Lamb of God, would would soon shed his own blood as a sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. It was as if the object and the object lesson came together in a literal sense. Well, as I said, Jesus' destination was a walled garden, and it would have been filled with olive trees with the city being overcrowded with the great Passover crowd, Jesus' only option was to go outside the city walls to find a private place like this to meet. And once Jesus arrived in that garden, he left eight disciples at the entryway and he asked Peter, James, and John to follow him on the inside. Now there's a gap between verses one and two that John doesn't fill. And that's because the other gospel writers already have done that in that their accounts were written earlier than John's account. I'm referring to the fact that at this point, Jesus was overcome with unspeakable horror thinking about what he was soon to be experiencing. Matthew 26, 38 tells us when Jesus entered the garden proper, he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. 
Mark 14, 35 says, going a little farther, he, Jesus, fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. And in Luke 22:44, it says, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Doctors tell us that in times of great stress, the human body can break down to such a point that blood can literally ooze through the pores of the skin. Well, no one had ever endured this kind of duress, this kind of stress that Jesus was under. It's no doubt that he did indeed sweat drops of blood as he thought of the sin that he would carry. He who was without sin, would carry in what he was about to bear. Jesus was about to have the cup of God's wrath, the wrath that we all deserved, poured out on him. Well, after about three hours, Jesus finished his prayer and he said in Matthew 26, 39, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And at this point, At about three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, Jesus heard the soldiers coming. I'm sure the disciples did as well because there were many of them. You know, we've seen a lot of depictions of this moment portrayed in movies with maybe a dozen men coming to arrest Jesus. But the phrase found in verse three that says detachment of soldiers, it tells us another story. You see, the word detachment when we tra- that we translate, it means cohort. And a, co- a Roman cohort was a tenth of a legion, or get this, 600 men. We all thought it was a dozen coming, maybe five or six, right? I mean, that's the way we've always seen it in the films. This was a cohort of soldiers, of a legion, a, a tenth of a legion. Now understand, normally the Romans didn't have a large garrison in Jerusalem, but remember, this was Passover. This was a time when hundreds of thousands of Jews from all over the region flooded into the city. So the Roman authorities sent a detachment of troops to handle riot control if needed, or to protect against some kind of a local insurrection if that were to happen. But this wasn't all. There was a second group who joined to go and arrest Jesus. The scriptures refer to them as officials. Well, these were the temple police. You see, the Jewish leaders were allowed to have their own security detail, their own security force. So in essence, the arrest of Jesus was a joint operation between the Jews and the Romans. Never thought of it that way, did you? And as I said, this was a big operation. Because added together, that could have numbered nearly 1,000 men. And they came carrying torches and lanterns and spears and swords. Some biblical commentators suggest that a contingent of the Roman cavalry would have also been present. But in any case, can you picture all of these soldiers coming to arrest one preacher? Perhaps after hearing the rumors of Jesus' miracle-working power, they found it wise to send a large enough force to handle someone reputed to raise the dead to life. Well, when they arrived, no doubt they surrounded the Garden of Gethsemane to prevent Jesus from escaping. But as I said, things were not as they appeared. 
This wasn't just one poor preacher against hundreds of professional soldiers. This was God in the flesh, and he was not some helpless victim. This was the undercover boss of all undercover bosses. And if you look closely, you will see proof that he was in control the entire time. And that's really what I wanna show you this morning. I want you to see the examples of Jesus' control during this crazy situation. And the first display that we see of his control is seen in his decision of where he went that night. You see, Jesus didn't have to go to Gethsemane. He could have gone any place where they would not have found him. Jesus knew full well that, that Judas knew about this place. I mean, look back at verse number two. It says, now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So with his decision to go to this particular grove, Jesus showed his control. And he did so by positioning himself in a place where Judas and those who were coming to get him were surely to find him. Now I want you to note that John does not specify where Judas's kiss of betrayal plays into this chain of events. And I believe that, that John did that because he wanted us to understand something of greater importance. He wants us to note that, that Jesus was not caught off guard, that Jesus was not surprised by Judas's deception. Jesus was completely knowledgeable of what was happening and he submitted himself fully to his father's will, which is why when the crowd arrived, he went out to meet them. Knowing that this was going to happen, Jesus went out and he asked them in verse four, who is it that you want? So please understand, Jesus wasn't, Jesus' life wasn't taken from him. Not at all. He freely laid his life down. He was in control. He went willingly to the cross because he loves you and he loves me and he knew that this was the only way that mankind could be saved. In fact, let me remind you of his words back in John 10, 17 and 18. He said, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. So to underscore this fact, I wanna point out a very interesting comparison. And it's one that I think John intentionally put in here. So I want you to hear me out because this is really cool what I'm gonna tell you. We often hear of the, and use the phrase the garden of Gethsemane, but it was not the common name for that place in John's day. And none of the other gospel writers use the word garden. They just say Gethsemane. John apparently used it to make us think of it compared to another garden, the Garden of Eden. In his biblical commentary, Arthur Pink refers to this and he says, the entrance of Christ into the garden at once reminds us of Eden. The contrast between them are indeed most striking. In Eden, all was delightful. In Gethsemane, all was terrible. In Eden, Adam and Eve parlayed with Satan. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought the face of his father. In Eden, Adam sinned. 
In Gethsemane, the Savior suffered. In Eden, Adam fell. In Gethsemane, the Redeemer conquered. The conflict in Eden took place by day. The conflict in Gethsemane was waged at night. In the one, Adam fell before Satan. In the other, the soldiers fell before Christ. In Eden, the human race was lost. In Gethsemane, Christ announced, of them whom thou gavest me, have I lost none. In Eden, Adam took the fruit from Eve's hand. In Gethsemane, Christ received the cup from his, his father's hand. In Eden, Adam hid himself. In Gethsemane, Christ boldly showed himself. In Eden, God sought Adam. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought God. From Eden, Adam was driven. From Gethsemane, Christ was led. Do you understand why John would set up this comparison? It's because he wanted us to know that Jesus was intentionally laying down his life. And he did it so that we could get back what Adam and Eve lost in that other garden, the Garden of Eden. John wants us to know that Jesus willingly came to the Garden of Gethsemane because it was the only way for the sin that began in the Garden of Eden to be washed away. This is why Jesus chose to go there that night. He wasn't forced. He was not caught unaware. This was all a part of his plan, a loving plan that would make it possible for us to come home to God. Well, another way Jesus' control was displayed on that night was in his demeanor when they came for him. John tells us, instead of waiting to be found, Jesus went forward to meet the armed crowd. Think about it. With all their torches and all of their lanterns, it's clear that they came prepared to search for a hiding Jesus. And with their weapons, they came to force a fleeing Jesus to come back with him. But the torches and the lanterns and the swords and the spears, they were not necessary because Jesus wasn't like some cowardly Saddam Hussein hiding in some kind of a hole, hoping not to be found by the soldiers. Jesus went out boldly to meet them face to face. And then in response to their question, he openly identified himself. And I want you to note their reaction to this in verse six, because it says, and most people miss this, they fell to the ground. How do you fall to the ground? Unless something knocks you down. Unless some force knocks you over, how do you fall to the ground? Unwillingly. John's account helps us to see that this response was a miracle. All of these strong men, these soldiers, these trained soldiers fell to the ground and they couldn't control what had just happened to them. And notice, they didn't fall down when Jesus asked, him, asked them what they wanted. They fell down immediately once he identified himself saying, I am he. Please get this, because this is so awesome. The word he is not used in the Greek. So Jesus literally said, I am. Does that sound familiar? That's to say he identified himself just like God the Father did when, when Moses stood before the burning bush 
In my mind, Jesus' response was the last exercise of the power of his voice. It's the same voice that was used to, to calm the seas and to still the winds and to call forth the dead back to life. And it is no wonder that these men fell down because the enemies of God walked into the presence of the Almighty. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is a foreshadowing of what their posture will be at the end of time. You remember Paul's words about this in Philippians chapter two? At the name of Jesus, he says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in my mind, this moment reminds me of the time that Moses could not look upon the face of God, but could only look at his back as he walked by. It's almost as if at that moment, there was a little tear that opened up in Jesus' flesh somewhere. And out of that small opening came this, this radiant, blinding flash of the brightness of who Jesus is. And it literally positioned those soldiers and temple police prostrate before him. And David prophesied this in Psalm 27 too, when he wrote, when evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. So there are two groups who were afraid that night. There were 11 disciples and there were about a thousand soldiers. But at that moment, I think the soldiers were more afraid. So Albert Schweitzer was wrong. Jesus didn't get caught in the wheel of history. In fact, as God in the flesh, sovereign even over his arrest that night, Jesus is the axis of history. Let me put it this way. In a very real sense, they did not arrest Jesus. Jesus arrested them. Jesus was not some nervous, scared criminal who was finally caught, nor was he a, a helpless victim of some kind of, of a lynch mob. He was the Lord of glory. He is the King of kings, even in this most humbling circumstance. His two identifying words were a gracious warning that these guys were weighing over their heads because Jesus could have called 10,000 angels. He could have ended it all right then and there, but he chose not to. And I can't help but wonder what was going on in old Judas's mind as he was struggling to get back up on his feet after being knocked down. Let me share with you the third thing that displayed Jesus' control that night. It was his ability to protect his disciples. You see, there can be no doubt that the soldiers arrived with the intention of not just arresting Jesus, but arresting his followers as well. As a matter of fact, one of them had to escape naked. In Mark 14, 51 through 52, it says, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garments behind. But Jesus protected all of his followers, just as he had promised through his prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. And his method was obvious. He asked them twice who they were looking for, and twice they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And that, therefore, that narrowed down their focus to him. 
Jesus also punctuated his questions by sending the soldiers sprawling to the ground. The end result was to make this suggestion. You need to let my disciples go. And in light of what just happened, they were all too happy to go along with this plan. So the way that Jesus protected his followers that night reminds me of how God protects us too. And several verses I want to share with you that underscore this, this comforting truth. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore, he is completely able to save those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Hebrews 2.18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jude, verse 24 and 25, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord. When we look at these verses, we see that through his mighty power and grace, Jesus does protect you and me. He intercedes for us in heaven, he helps us to resist temptation, and he brings us home to heaven. How does he do that for us? He did it like he did that night, by placing himself between us and our enemies. Our boss still guides us and still protects us. Don't ever lose sight of that. And here's the fourth bit of proof of Jesus' control that night. The dramatic healing of Malchus's ear. The ever impetuous Peter, he takes out his sword and he takes a wild swing at one of those in the crowd and he cuts the man's ear off. I don't know, Peter may have intended to cleave the man's skull and just had a bad, bad swing, I'm not sure. <laughs> Knowing Peter, like we know him, he probably wanted to kill the guy. But to his credit, Peter was really brave. <laughs> Think about that. Because here's one fisherman going up against hundreds of professionally fully armed soldiers. John tells us that the, the man's name who got his ear cut off was Malchus. And I want you to think of the tension at that moment. Malchus is standing there wide-eyed, blood pouring out through his fingers, while hundreds of steel blades are making a, a, a scraping sound as they are coming out of the sheaths that they are in. In fact, I think the greatest proof of, of Jesus' ability to protect his followers is in the fact that Peter didn't end up getting slaughtered that night. Because the truth is, he could have ended up with dozens of Roman spears and swords piercing through his body, but Jesus did not allow that to happen. In Luke twenty-two fifty-one, 51, Jesus said, no more of this to Peter. And then his last miracle before the crucifixion, he heals Malchus's ear. And let me stop and, at this point and ask you, have you ever been like Peter and that you tried to help Jesus in the wrong way? You ever gotten involved in his stuff? You, spoke, you just let him do his thing, but you had to try to get involved and, and rush it along or do something your own way? Well, here was Jesus rebuked him. He said, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Well, have you ever done something like that? Perhaps you gossiped to make sure that the right people knew what was going on in a particular situation so you wouldn't look so bad in it. Or maybe there was a time where you angrily and hatefully rebuked a brother because 
You felt a desire, you felt he deserved to be reamed out for, for something that he did? Or maybe you're one of those people who sends anonymous letters criticizing people and pastors for things that they do but don't have the courage to put your name down on the letter. You know who you are. <laughs> Even though we learned last week, Jesus clearly taught that in these situations, you go to the person face to face, right? That's what we talked about last week. I mean, when you think about it, it's amazing how much trouble is caused by people who pull a Peter. It's when we, we, we try to do, we, we try to write a wrong in the wrong kind of a way. Let me tell you something. You gotta remember that there is no right way to do a wrong thing. There just isn't. Plus, Jesus didn't need you to save him today just like he didn't need Peter to save him on that night. Remember, he is the boss and he's always in control. And that brings something else to mind. In his act of healing Malchus's ear, I think we see Jesus' sovereignty reaching out in love to his enemies. Think about this situation, if you will, for just a moment. Where do you think Malchus went after this arrest? He went to Caiaphas and Annas to report on the success of their venture. By the way, Annas and Caiaphas were not good guys. Annas had previously been the high priest, while Caiaphas was currently the high priest. But please understand that being a high priest in those days was nothing more than being a collaborator with the Roman Empire. In fact, usually the office went to the highest bidder and the family of Annas was extremely wealthy and one by one, they had intrigued and bribed their way into that office. So Caiaphas was the current high priest while Annas remained the real power behind it. It was sort of like the religious mafia and Annas was the godfather, you know? <laughs> Remember, it was his booth in the temple courts that Jesus twice had overturned when he cleansed the temple. So these were bad guys and they wanted Jesus completely out of the picture because his activities were a threat to their continued wealth and power. And yet Jesus healed Caiaphas's chief servant. And I believe that it was completely driven by compassion for Malchus, the man himself. Let me try to piece together what I think might have happened that night. Perhaps you'll see my reasoning behind this and, and work with me on this. Give me a little creative license here. John tells us that Jesus is first taken to Annas, which leaves Caiaphas wondering what is going on. He's waiting for his servant, Malchus, to, to come back and to tell him whether he got Jesus or not. Finally, Malchus and a few of the others arrive, and with urgency in his voice, Caiaphas probably asked, how did it go? And one of them says, it went well. We got him. And then Caiaphas probably asked, did you have any trouble? And still shocked a little bit about what, by what just happened, they probably mumbled, well, not really, uh, maybe a little. And Caiaphas impatiently asked, what do you mean? How much is a little? And everybody turns and they look at Malchus and they say, well, Malchus had a little problem. And Caiaphas is probably saying, well, Malchus, tell me about it. What happened? What was the problem? And, and Malchus looks up with a shocked face and he says, 
One of his servants pulled a sword on me and he cut my ear off. And Caiaphas says, well, how can that be? (laughs) It's attached to your head. You must be mistaken. I see some blood on on your tunic, but how can that be? You obviously have no wounds and your ear is fine. Then Malchus explains, well, that's because the man that you sent us to arrest, he reached down and he pulled my ear out of the dust and he put it back on the side of my head and he restored it completely. There was incredible pain, but when he touched me, it stopped instantly. And I reached up and I touched the wound and my ear was healed. Listen, I don't know exactly what Malchus said that night to Caiaphas, but I am certain what he was getting at was this. Sir, do you really think we arrested the right man? And what really intrigues me is how that even this did not deter Caiaphas in the least. He still pushed all the way through the various trials that Jesus had that night and our Lord was crucified on the next day. And by the way, I know you're wondering, hey, we're weeks away from Easter. How are you so close to the story? Trust me, I got all kinds of stuff to share with you before Easter Sunday. So don't, don't, I'm not, I haven't messed up here, okay? We got a long way to go. So just hang here with me. Understand something. Every day, For the rest of his life, Caiaphas had to look down and in front of him stood his servant, Malchus. And he could see that his right ear was in fact completely healed. It was as good as new. And Caiaphas was also aware of the reports of Jesus' resurrection. And Caiaphas also saw the the, uh, church of Jesus Christ being birthed and continuing to grow. So every time he looked down at the ear of his servant, he was reminded of Jesus and his message of love. In fact, I think that the reason the Bible tells us Malchus's name is so that we know how much God cares for the wicked and ruthless gangsters of the world like Caiaphas and Annas. God does things like that all the time. He reaches out to people who are lost and broken in every conceivable way. Something as simple as a Gideon Bible in the the nightstand of a hotel room or a gospel track that is left on the bench of, of, of of a bus station. God loves all people and he wants that none should perish. So I hope you have come to realize this morning the main point of my message is that Gethsemane was not a tragedy, ladies and gentlemen. And and, and it lets me know this. Neither are our Gethsemanes. Because behind every human tragedy, you'll find a benevolent and a wise, the wise purpose of the Lord in human history. Your and my history. Life may be bleak at times, and tragedy may come, and the nightly news may make you feel like the whole world is tearing apart at the seams, but you've got to understand something. God is sovereign, and God is faithful. He will always work for our good, even in our Gethsemanes, so you don't ever have to be afraid in this life. We can rest in the knowledge that that our sovereign God, the boss, is in control, and that he always lovingly works for our good and for his glory. And that's a good place to say amen.
Pulled a little Tommy Barnett there, didn't I? It's a good place to say amen. You're not gonna amen me, I'm gonna make you amen me, all right? In response to his understanding of God's sovereignty, Oswald Chambers decided to adopt this foundational principle in his life when he said, no matter what happens in life, and I quote, absolutely refuse to worry. We should embrace a trust in God that leads us to do the same. Your retirement going down the drain, keep working, but absolutely refuse to worry. Marriage falling apart, pray, seek counseling, but absolutely refuse to worry. A loved one lying in ICU, get a good doctor, but absolutely refuse to worry. Can't help but think of Kaylee this morning, whose husband's in ICU. For those of you who don't know, Stephen McIntosh, one of our board members, was in a motorcycle accident, and he's in bad shape. Um, slowly, things are progressing, but they don't know what kind of damage has occurred because he took a real bad hit to his head. And every day she wonders, and I know she worries, and, and, and I say not to worry. Worry is a, is a human trait. It's, it's, it's real. But I only say this to you to keep Stephen in your prayers. Lift him up every day. We want him to come out of this uh, coma that they've put him in uh, with no damage. We want him to be able to fully function and be able to continue to be a father and support his family. And I greatly, and I know the family would greatly appreciate your prayers. So sorry I got off on a little bit of a, tan a little bit there, but I wanted you to know that. And I want you to earnestly pray for Stephen and Kaylee McIntosh. No matter what happens, we got to believe that God, our undercover boss, is doing things that you and I don't see and we don't understand. And he's doing things that are deeper and, and better and more wonderful than you and I could imagine. So absolutely refuse to worry. Stop trying to manipulate all of your situations. Stop trying to figure out how to make them work out because you know who is ultimately in control. Rest in his sovereign goodness and in his power and in his wisdom. Memorize and live by Paul's words found in Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, the answer to that question, ladies and gentlemen, is no one. Because God is the boss. He is CEO over all. So absolutely refuse to worry because he is in control. Scott, will you come forward? I'd like to ask everyone to stand to your feet. Thank you. A pastor who grew up sailing boats as a child, he illustrates this principle. In something he wrote very well, I want to read it to you. He said, when I was first learning how to sail my dad's sailboat out on Lake Michigan, he would often say to me, go ahead, take the boat out, but take a friend with you. Now a 42 foot sailboat on a body of water the size of Lake Michigan is a big responsibility, but always up for the challenge, I'd find a junior high school friend to come and accompany me and we'd sail past the breakwater, hoist the sails and head out into open water. But as soon as I'd see any cloud formation coming our way or the wind piping up, I'd head back toward shore, take the sails down and regain my normal breathing pattern only when we were safely tied up to the slip. 
Most of the time, it was fun having a friend along, but in a storm, I knew this kid wouldn't be much help. Other times, though, my dad would come home from work and we'd go out together. When I was sailing with my dad, I actually looked for cloud formations and hoped for heavy air. I loved the feel of strong winds and huge waves with my dad at the helm. You see, my dad had, a, had sailed across the Atlantic Ocean. He had endured five days of sailing through a hurricane. He was a veteran, and I was confident that he would be able to handle anything Lake Michigan could throw at us. Everything changed when my dad was aboard. Well, everything changes for us in life when we understand that our Heavenly Father is on board. And not only is he on board, but he is at the helm of the ship of our life. When we understand, ladies and gentlemen, that God is absolutely sovereign, we will develop a supernatural confidence even during the difficult storms of life. Because we know he can handle anything that gets thrown at us. We learn as A.W. Tozer reminds us, whoever is on the Lord's side is on the winning side and cannot lose. Whoever is on the other side is on the losing side and cannot win. Where are you this morning? Are you on the winning side with Jesus or are you on the other side, the losing side? Maybe you're here today or you're watching online and you're not certain the answer to that question. You may say, well, I'm an American and because America is a Christian nation, that makes me a Christian. So I'm on Jesus' side. Well, can I tell you something? Being an American makes you as much of a Christian as watching the Olympics on television makes you an athlete. Because to become a Christian, it requires a decision of your will. It is a decision you make and a belief that Jesus Christ is in fact Lord of all. And you must decide if it will be your knees that will bow, that will bow and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, you can do it one of two ways. And this is not a scare tactic and this is not a threat. This is the reality. You can do this one of two ways. You can acknowledge his Lordship now, become a follower of Jesus, or You can be one of those in the end where the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Can I just say you don't wanna wait till the end because at that point, if you are forced to do so, it's too late. The Bible says if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The only way to God is through Jesus, his son, and you must accept him as Lord. And I wanna give you an opportunity to do that in just a moment this morning, but I also wanna talk to those of you here who are already followers of Jesus Christ. Some of you are living like fearful children regarding everything that is going on in our world today. You're scared and you're worrying like crazy. We know the time is coming where Jesus is gonna take us home. And I believe that that moment is fast approaching. In fact, I believe that that moment could happen at any time. 
But what I don't understand is the fear that I'm constantly hearing from you. Instead of rejoicing, knowing that we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. High point, can can I just say, no matter what fears you are, you are dealing with, you might be experiencing right now, God has got this. He is sovereign over all things. And just like he was on the night of his arrest, he has it all under control. His plan was to come and die. He did it willingly so that we could live. And guess what? His plan for this sin-stained world of ours has been set into motion and you need not fear one single thing. He's got this and he's got you. Don't ever forget what the Bible says. In times like these, you lift up your head because you know that your redemption draweth nigh. This is a time for rejoicing. This is not a time for fear. We will probably live to see the coming of Jesus Christ in our generation. That's an amazing thing. They've talked about it for centuries. Your parents talked about it. Your grandparents talked about it. I believe it is our generation that will go up into the clouds with Jesus. And what an exciting thing that is. What I want to do this morning is to open this altar. And I want to open it, first of all, to anybody who does not know Jesus. You've decided you're on the wrong side. And you want to be on the right side. Come down to this altar. Acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Ask him to forgive you of your sins, to be the Lord of your life. He will come in and he will change you. You will be transformed. The Bible says you become a new creation and you will have the promise of eternal life either when you die or when Jesus comes, either way. Maybe you're here today and you're facing fears through what's going on in the world or what might be going on personally in your life. You've come to realize today that those fears are unfounded. We'll come to this altar and give those fears to Jesus. Maybe you've come this morning to realize that you're not trusting God like you should. Again, you're suffering a difficult time and you're worrying about something. Come to this altar and take your worry and lay it at the foot of Jesus and walk away. Maybe you have a physical need this morning. Maybe you need a healing touch from the Lord. Maybe you need a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. You feel dry. You're not as sharp as you once were. You're asleep at the wheel. Maybe you just want to come this morning and give him thanks for all that he's done, for his goodness to you. Whatever it is, this altar is open. While the worship team sings, I want you to come forward. What you're looking for is at this altar, and it comes from our Lord and Savior. And you will find that our God, who is sovereign, is in complete control. While the worship team sings, spend some time at the altar, and then we will close in a closing prayer. Sin and shame 
forgiveness and embrace Worthy is the Lamb Seated on the throne I crown you now with many crowns you reign victorious I am lifted up Jesus Son of God The darling of heaven crucified stay here as long as they'd like. I'd like you to bow your heads with me. Precious Father, we thank you for your word that when we get into it and look at historical records and biblical records and cultural records, Father, there's so much more than what we often read. Thank you, Father, for showing us that what to us appeared to be a great tragedy, and it was that the Son, the sinless Son of God died 
It was your plan. It was why you came, so that we could receive salvation. And as much as we would like for it not to happen, had it not happened, Father, we'd be in bad shape. So Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for fulfilling your mission. Thank you for giving us an opportunity to be reconciled to God the Father and be in a relationship with God Almighty with the promise of eternal life when our time is done. Father, I pray for the needs that came forth today, whatever they were, Father, I I know not what they are, but you do. I pray that you would attend to each one. Father, open up our hearts to fully trust you to believe in your sovereignty, to know that you are here to help us and not to hurt us. Father, I pray and I rebuke fear and worry in the name of Jesus. You would strike it from our hearts. We would keep our eyes focused upon you completely, knowing that you are in charge, you are the boss, and you've got everything under control. And if you've got it under control, we can walk freely and say, thank you, Jesus. I trust you completely. So Lord, as we go our separate ways today, I pray that your spirit would go with us, guiding and directing us, the places we go, the things that we do, the conversations that we have, that those conversations would would build people up and not tear people down, that we would be shining lights in this very dark world, that we would shine so greatly that, that people could not help but notice it and come to us and say, what is it that's different about you? And God, as you open that door, that we would walk through it and tell them about your goodness. In fact, I pray as I'm doing every week now, Lord, that you would bring a divine encounter into the life of each person here today. And when that encounter comes, they would boldly move forward, trusting in you, knowing that you're the boss, you're in control. And as the Bible says, you will give them the words to speak. Father, I pray that between now and the time we gather together again, you would keep us safe. Keep us safe from sickness, disease, from any accidents that might befall us so that we can come together again and worship you in spirit and in truth. As we leave here today, Father, let us go in your love. Let us go looking for ways to heal broken situations through your love that flows through us and help us to be living examples of Jesus Christ as we become closer to becoming like him as we walk through this world and are empowered by your spirit. And I ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for being here.